0: Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Bern. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research discuss how these solutions work in practice and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Basically, we
1: decided that we really needed to look not only at all the world's land and how we're modeling use of all that land, but also can we meet the demand without additional deforestation, without clearing land? Because while the agriculture and land use sector is responsible for roughly a quarter of emissions, anthropogenic emissions. Half of that is from land clearing, basically deforestation for agriculture. Almost all the deforestation is for agriculture. So it's really critical that we figure out how to meet that demand. Can we meet that demand?
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Eric Tonsmar to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Eric has spent more than two decades studying useful perennial plants and their role in agroforestry systems. He's a senior researcher with Project Drawdown and a lecturer at Yale University. Eric is the award-winning author of Paradise Lost and Perennial Vegetables and the Carbon Farming Solution and the co-author of Edible Forest Gardens. Eric has also enjoyed a varied career in agriculture. He's owned a seed company, managed an herbal farm that leased parcels of land to Hispanic and refugee growers, and provided planning and business trainings to farmers. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for taking the time today to speak to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So could you just tell me a little bit about your background, Eric, and how you became involved in Project Drawdown? Certainly. um, I've been... um Uh, a
1: practitioner and uh, investigator of uh, perennial crops and agroforestry systems for about 25 years Um, and with some sense of the broader, let's say, regenerative agriculture um, world. And I began uh, investigating the climate change uh, impacts of those practices about 10 years ago that uh, I began writing a book somewhere around 2009, 2010, which finally came out in 2016. And um, so it's an area of, of great interest um, to me for a number of years. I only discovered the carbon sequestration potential uh, very far into my journey in the, in the subject, really. Right. When you talk about regenerative agriculture, what does this embrace? What is this? Sure. In, in this case, I'm using the, the the broader definition, which would be agriculture that leaves the leaves the land in better shape than it found it, as opposed to the drawdown definition, which we can get into later on. Um, the organic and sustainable agriculture often meet those criteria. Um, really. Uh, extremely ecologically friendly
0: methods for meeting human needs while improving ecosystem health. Right, right. So I I guess the, the base situation, we're seeing a situation where we're going to need a lot more food over the coming decades to feed growing populations and so forth. Uh, and I guess that in itself is quite a challenge. Um, and you you hear people talking about the challenges of, of uh, improving yields and the kinds of yields that have already been achieved and some of the biological limits and so forth. And yet the heart of this is looking at ways of reducing the carbon associated with this. So I guess it's these things together. It is indeed. And Drawdown is um, is uh,
1: relatively unique in that our approach is both to reduce demand and increase supply. Um, other people are looking at that as well, but we've really put a lot of time into uh, um, fleshing out. The nice thing about our approach that looks across all these different sectors is so we can really say, how do we, um, what is meeting the world's food? needs in 2050 really mean and what does that look like? How do we reduce uh, demand through educating girls and family planning, through reducing food waste, through uh, a plant-based diet, um, through uh, a de-emphasis of biofuels, through not using bioenergy carbon capture and storage on the one hand. And then on the other hand, how do we grow more food on the land we have without having to cut down forests for more food? Uh, And almost all of the practices that Drawdown looks at uh, increase production. And really, there aren't any agricultural, there are almost no agricultural practices that are climate friendly that were developed for climate-friendly reasons. They were developed because they do something good for the farm and or something good for the ecosystem around them. Um, so most of them do increase yields. One real exception being the low-methane rice systems, um, many but not all of which were developed to reduce methane. And and, and we found uh, reduced yields a, a very small amount.
0: So how much did we know about this before you brought together all the different research and doing the modeling in Drawdown. Was this a fairly clear area of research? Was there a pretty established uh, conventional way of looking at this? Hmm. That is a great question. Well, uh, I guess it depends what you mean by we. Certainly,
1: (laughs) all of the pieces that Drawdown looked at were being looked at by somebody somewhere. Um, all of our work, that is, is based on, uh, you know, meta-analysis of lots and lots of peer-reviewed studies. So, so it was all out there somewhere. And there have been some attempts to look very broadly, the intergovernmental panel on climate change, for example, has certainly looked broadly at agriculture and climate for for many years. Um, so in that sense, it, yes, it's certainly been looked at. We um, We brought in some pieces that have not been... Um, I would say have not gotten on the radar as much as they should be like agroforestry when agroforestry is any kind of farming system that combines trees with the raising of crops or livestock. Um, And while the IPCC, for example, and some other um, uh, uh, big studies looking at agriculture and climate will often incorporate agroforestry, they just use one They typically just say agroforestry and assign a very low impact to it, when in fact there's lots of different kinds of agroforestry, each of which has very different potential uh, on a per area basis and on a global basis, and all of which are much more widely established than they've really been given credit for. Um, So I think we were able to give a higher profile to some of those practices and some of the other things we're looking at as well that maybe haven't um, uh, had their moment in the limelight and drawdown is helping to bring more attention. To, to some of these solutions, which I feel really great about.
0: So, yeah, in a moment, I'd be very interested to discuss maybe three or four of the most important solutions that you've discovered in your research. But maybe before that, perhaps we could just talk about biosequestration, if I pronounced that correctly. And what is that? Why is it important? And what role does it play in the solutions that you've identified and drawn down? Great. Um, yeah, in our
1: agricultural Uh, area and drawdown about 90% of the impact comes from biosequestration rather than emissions reduction. So it's a really critical part of our, of our program and of really any program in, in agriculture, uh, around, um, around, uh, aiming for drawdown. So basically the way it works is if, if people can remember back to high school biology and photosynthesis, plants have this amazing ability to, to take, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and part of what we're trying to do is remove excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They break off the oxygen and release it back into the air, which we then can enjoy breathing, and that carbon they make into all kinds of compounds, um, fibers and sugars and starches and all manner of things. Some of that ends up in the soil as plants decompose and becomes uh, organic matter, which is a reservoir of carbon in the soil. Some of it is exuded through the roots uh, in the form of sugars to feed soil microorganisms. Some of that ends up as organic matter in the soil. And some of it stays in perennial plants, like in trees, it stays in the wood of trees. Trees, if you dry them out, are about 50% carbon and soil organic matter or humus is 57 or 58 uh, percent carbon on a dry weight basis so we're really looking at using a very natural process that already is taking place all around us to remove this excess carbon uh, from the atmosphere and store it in soil and in perennial biomass that's what bio sequestration is all about in our ecosystem Solutions, or land use solutions, uh, very much use this as well as our our agricultural supply side production
0: solutions. Very interesting. And how did you come to this perspective to realize the significance of biosequestration?
1: Well, when you when you look at some of the numbers about where we are in terms of how much uh, excess carbon is in the atmosphere, and when you look at the um, uh, uh, amounts of emissions that are need that need to be reduced, and so on. We really are unable to achieve drawdown without biosequestration. there on the one hand, there's a limit to biosequestration. There's kind of we we basically think there's only so much you can put back in any given acre or hectare of soil, and there's only so much that can go in biomass. There's a limit to that. and there are some interesting exceptions, but basically they become saturated, they fill up and they're done. so there's there's only so much you can capture in soil and biomass on the one hand. Um, and that's much less than the remaining amount of fossil fuels. So there's no way we can keep living the way we are. There's no way civilization can continue with the level of emissions it has. The the, the land-based storage is not big enough to handle that. On the other hand, we've stepped so far over uh, how much we should have in the atmosphere already that we really can't get back to where we need to be without um. Without biosequestration. So it's an essential component, uh, but it's not sufficient on its own. We can't do it without it, but we also uh, can't only rely on that.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned earlier, very briefly, just alluded to the fact that some of the uh, methods, the agricultural processes using trees in in various ways. Now, I know that they recently had a, uh, I think, a conference on the nets are the negative emissions technologies. But I think they they did look at this question of what I suppose they call natural climate solutions, um, basically. Uh, to contribute to negative emissions, and I know that that afforestation or reforestation that are areas of great interest. Is that something that you take into account to some extent, or is uh, not at all? Drawdown absolutely does. We have a whole land use sector
1: that looks at um, uh, the the protection of natural ecosystems, the restoration of natural ecosystems, and also biomass and timber production, including afforestation. Um, in this case, uh, uh, um, that's we've sort of separated those out from our agricultural food production systems. Um, so uh, that's a separate sector from what we're talking about okay. today. So
0: in your analysis, it's it's included in the in the in the other sector, not included in your analysis.
1: Oh, you can't do it without those things. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. They're they're essential. They're absolutely essential, and and Drawdown really placed a very high priority particularly on um, tropical forest restoration as a really critical solution and also on protecting peatlands and coastal wetlands, which are these amazing reservoirs of, um, of carbon and, and actually are the peatlands and coastal wetlands are the only uh, examples that, that I know of of ecosystems that never are saturated with carbon. They can continue to sequester carbon for thousands and thousands of years at a modest rate, but forever, whereas these agricultural systems and most ecosystems, possibly an exception for tropical forests is still controversial. um, After 10 or 50 years, they're full and they can't really accept any more carbon. So these peatlands and coastal wetlands like mangroves and salt marshes and seagrass beds are, are of essential importance because of that power that they have
0: very interesting very interesting now before going into this different solutions does it make sense to set the scene in terms of the global demand that you're looking at a food demand that you were expecting sure just we have covered this in another podcast but just the 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 overall level and maybe to some extent how that drives some of these questions
1: well i don't have those numbers right at my fingertips in terms of how much we're trying to supply what i can say is that um uh, drawdown has modeled how much food is required uh, based on uh, both in sort of a reference case that, that looks at and that looks at business as usual including one that looks at business as usual without family planning and educating girls um, sort of a higher population solution um, and really they just fed us the numbers and they said here's how much we need based on uh, the um, our, our population solutions which are, I should just say, voluntary and non-coercive women's rights-based solutions uh, in combination with reduced food waste and diet change. And the reason that diet change is so important is because livestock are really terribly inefficient at uh, at ways for us to eat. They are delicious, but um, uh, the amount of grain, let's say, it would take to to make a steak – would feed 10 people yes so you get 10 you turn 10 meals into one meal it's really problematic and um so in terms of global land use uh diet is really critical particularly livestock is really critical and um we we basically we we decided that we really needed to look not only at all the world's land and how we're modeling use of all that land but also uh, can we meet the demand without additional deforestation, without clearing land? Because um, while, while the agriculture and land use sector is responsible for roughly a quarter of emissions, of human emissions, anthropogenic emissions, half of that is from land clearing, is from basically deforestation for agriculture. Almost all the deforestation is for agriculture. So it's really critical that we figure out how to meet that Demand can we meet that demand without um, uh, without any additional clearing of land? And we found that in both of our reference, our business as usual with and without family planning and educating girls, uh, a huge amount of clearing land was necessary in order to feed the world. Um, But when we when we implement those solutions and we reduce food waste and change diet, and on the one hand, on the demand side, and on the supply side implement these mini solutions that do, in most cases, increase yields. Uh, all three of our scenarios were able to meet demand in 2050 without any additional deforestation, which is pretty exciting and is actually very much in line with projections you see from other attempts to look at at um, uh, at changes to both demand and supply simultaneously. It's not a an unusual thing that we that we
0: found that result, but it is a very exciting result for sure. Right, right. Sounds good. Now, can we start maybe talking about silvo pasture? I think that is the with high, highest ranked agricultural right. uh, supply side solution. What is that, and what is its potential? And can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Silvo
1: pasture is an agroforestry practice mm-hmm. that. Uh, uh involves various methods of integrating trees with, uh, with forages like pasture or, or uh, other grazing land and uh, livestock, typically ruminant livestock like cows and sheep and goats. Um, and the trees might be planted or they may be allowed to emerge spontaneously on their own through management by keeping the animals from from grazing or trampling them down when they're young. Um, and it's a, it's actually a very widespread practice. It is, um, by some estimates, as much as 15% of the world's grazing land, uh, is in silvopasture today, uh, and it has a very, very high sequestration rate. That is the impact in terms of carbon per acre or per hectare is, is very, very high. Um, we found it was about, uh, four times, four more times higher than the managed, grazing systems alone um, and um, it has a really powerful storage of carbon and not only has a higher annual rate but it stores more carbon in the long term both in the soil and in the biomass then um, than managed grazing systems alone it's you can't do it everywhere because you need a certain amount of rainfall to um, to make tree growth viable um, it does increase yields to to some degree over business as usual, and um, it's uh, despite its great power, it has really been very very minimally uh, looked at. Um, I mean, there's a number of studies that look at the climate impact of uh, and sequestration impact of silvopasture, but in terms of the IPCC, in terms of the The big uh, modeling efforts looking at agriculture and land-based solutions, it's almost never paid any attention to. And yet it is one of the most powerful solutions there is. And it's not a new and crazy idea. People have been doing it for thousands of years. It's extremely widespread. Um, Much of the attention in the livestock world has really gone to grazing systems. uh, And actually, Drawdown found that uh, silvopasture has twice the impact on one-fifth of the land of grazing systems it's not appropriate everywhere it's not a silver bullet but it is a very powerful solution and i'm very grateful that drawdown has been able to bring so much attention to it
0: great and what are your assumptions there and you mentioned some parts of the, the land isn't appropriate for silver pasture what kind of percentage increases are you looking at by 2050 and and how does that happen have you modeled how it's been increasing over time or are you making assumptions about how it spreads around the world Sure. Well, we had to, um, there's very little data
1: about growth rates in silvopasture. So we had to use data on growth rates from, um, from other kinds of agroforestry systems, which we have really good satellite data on, um, on the tree intercropping systems where you combine trees with, with crops. So we had to use growth rates from that. But really we, um,
0: we did not model a huge growth in silvopasture. So what scale of adoption are you looking at for silver pasture and how do you see that increasing the levels of silver pasture uh, is there an educational program is it through uh, you know multilateral agencies how does the message get out
1: Well um there are a number of different ways that we can see these practices spreading um one is uh, payment for environmental services. So many governments actually pay their uh, farmers and ranchers to transition to uh, carbon friendly practices. And um, the real leaders on this in silvopasture are in Latin America, Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Colombia um, have done some phenomenal work in um, in increasing silvopasture in Costa Rica about 90% of all grazing land is silvopasture at this point so they're the ones to beat uh, for sure so governments can pay uh, can pay farmers to do it uh, in Mexico they found actually that um, when the government subsidized uh, this transition finance the transition to silvopasture Ranchers that that had been receiving government subsidies for decades no longer needed them because they became more profitable due to increased productivity. Um, uh, we also um, are starting to see some dedicated pools of finance that are paying attention to to agroforestry issues. So we'd like to see dedicated lines of credit uh, and special interest rates available for for silvopasture producers. Um, I'm also a big fan of some market-based solutions here, like we'd like to see um, a uh, certification program that would show silvopasture-produced beef that people would know would be the most carbon-friendly out there. So if we can offer premium prices, if we can offer even just access to certain kinds of markets, um, there's a, a whole constellation of tools we can use to assist farmers to make these Uh, make these kind of changes, one of which is just to stop subsidizing non-carbon-friendly methods of beef production, because really these producers are competing against people whose unsustainable way of production is, is subsidized in lots of visible and invisible ways. Right.
0: Right. Now, I saw you have some figures about two tons of carbon per acre per year in terms of reduction, reduction of carbon associated with biosequestration. How does that figure compare with that with other agricultural? Maybe you don't know. I, I'm just curious. Sure.
1: Actually, I've, I've looked at that question quite a bit. So um, I'll speak in hectares and, and mentor tons just because that's where I'm more comfortable of. Uh, drawdown found pasture had about a 4.8 Uh, tons per hectare per year impact which um, which compares to the managed grazing solution came in around one so it's about four times eight four point eight times higher than that Um, it's higher than conservation agriculture it's higher which is uh, comes in around one it's higher than organic annual cropping which typically comes in around one So, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, It has a high density of trees, and the more trees, the better in terms of carbon, typically. And it also doesn't involve tilling the soil at all, so that's very desirable. Uh, The disadvantage is that it involves um, the cattle, of course, continue to produce methane and, and nitrous oxide, which are potent greenhouse gases. And when we compared the we, we looked at both our, our grazing solution, which I do think is, you know, very much an important solution with silvopasture. We found that the methane, um, the, the methane and nitrous oxide produced by, um, by the ruminants, by the livestock in those systems in the case of silvopasture, um, it only uh, negated or offset about 8% of the sequestration that was happening. So the sequestration was really outweighing those emissions. Whereas in managed grazing, the emissions uh, 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 offset about two-thirds, 66% uh, of the sequestration. So silvopasture is an example of a really unambiguously climate-friendly way to raise livestock. That doesn't mean we all get to eat steak every day because there's only so much land that you can do it on and there's no way to meet even current, let alone projected meat demand by doing that. But it is a way to provide some portion um, of the demand uh, for for livestock based protein, dairy and dairy and meat, which is really good news. It's not an. A lot of people really want to make an either or about livestock and climate, and it's quite actually a very complex and nuanced uh, area when you really get into to look at it.
0: Right. Silver pasture, very uh, powerful technique then and underutilized with potential, um, but as you say, with some caveats in terms of its uh, applicability. Now, can you talk a little bit about regenerative or conservation agriculture and um, what the prospects for, for them are?
1: Great. Great. Yes. So um, so while grazing is the world's biggest land use with three and a half billion hectares uh, in grazing land, uh, there's about one point five or one point six billion hectares of cropland. Almost all of that is growing annual crops. wheat and corn and potatoes and soybeans and these basic foods that we eat and and in many cases that our livestock eat as well so it's a really important area it's a major source of emissions Um, so we need better ways to raise those crops and one of the most widespread current practices is called conservation agriculture and it has three basic tenets which uh you need to be doing all three for it to be considered conservation agriculture um one is to use cover crops so when you're finished growing your food crop you plant another crop which is really there just to to hold the soil in place to to prevent erosion uh and to increase soil organic matter and then when it's done you you plow it in or you kill it in some way and plant your next crop um so we have cover crops the next part is crop rotation where instead of growing the same crop on the same land year after year after year, you switch. So maybe you do corn and then you do beans the next year and and you go back to corn after that, or in some way you're, you're switching back and forth between different plant families. That's really critical for maintaining healthy soil. Uh, and finally in conservation agriculture, we're reducing tillage, tillage. When you plow the soil, basically it exposes the organic matter in the soil to the air. And that much of the carbon is oxidized and becomes carbon dioxide. So you're burning up your, your organic matter and causing emissions. So we want to reduce tillage. So when you put those three together, you have conservation agriculture. And there are both very large uh, mechanized industrial versions of that. And uh, and also some smallholder friendly, um, uh, very agroecological versions of that. Mostly what we see around the world is the, is the more... Um, a uh, chemical intensive version which uses herbicides to burn down the cover crops, which often uses GMO crops. Um, and uh, Drawdown's not wild about those practices. We're not wild about that kind of agriculture. We do acknowledge that it is already being done on 9% of the world's cropland and it's growing very rapidly. And it definitely sequesters carbon at a modest rate, you know, maybe a ton per hectare per year or so, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, we, we, we also talk about what we call, and there are a number of practitioners doing conservation agriculture who are doing some really innovative ecological things with it. Um, we, we sort of have that as one strand of how to do annual farming better. And the other strand is really coming out of the agroecology movement, the organic movement. Um, and what drawdown is calling regenerative agriculture, which is also a word that's used to describe a whole range of sustainable practices. In this case, for drawdown, we mean it very specifically, describing annual cropping systems that have any four of the following six practices. They could have all three from conservation, agriculture, cover cropping, crop rotation, reduced tillage. Um, But we're adding organic, we're adding compost application, and we're adding green manures, which is a type of cover crop that is grown uh, nitrogen-fixing one that's grown to um, to provide fertility, which reduces the need for nitrogen fertilizer, which the emissions from nitrogen fertilizer are a major uh, major greenhouse gas. So if anybody, so what we're really seeing is that what drawdown is seeing is that that both in this conventional approach to doing things better and in the organic approach to doing things better, this agroecological approach, which has its own drawback of being very reliant on tillage, very reliant on plowing and tillage to control weeds and so on. We're starting to see those growing and merging into each other. That some of the best practices on both ends are starting to look like each other are starting to, I, I like to describe it as the way that when I was a teenager, punk rock and heavy metal hated each other. Um, They were totally different approaches to making music, but they began to merge. And at this point, they've really become almost indistinguishable and they've grown into something new. That's how I see these two kinds of agriculture starting to grow. So in the drawdown model, we actually show many farmers – uh, converting to conservation agriculture, and then going the extra step to become regenerative. And that's really happening in the world. So we we did our best to model that. And together, it's a very powerful impact between these solutions.
0: That's fascinating. Um, and to what extent are these methods, Eric, being used by smallholder farms? Or are they more amenable to larger, more mechanized, industrialized farms? I mean, is one more effective than the other? Can you talk a little bit about what's happening there?
1: Sure, I, I think really both are happening. Certainly, there's 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 lots of what is happening in regenerative agriculture today is happening on on smaller farms, whether they're smallholders or 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 smaller, uh, you know, global north kind of farms. Um, but um, we're very much seeing on even very large, very mechanized farms that this regenerative agriculture is taking off. Um, this interest in having a really, truly healthy soil um, and interest in very complex multi-species cover crops, in integrating crops and livestock together, reintegrating crops and livestock together, in um, looking at the impacts of uh, of um, compost application and so on, to the point that some of these you know, fairly large uh, farms are... F- that are doing, let's say, conservation agriculture plus uh, are only applying herbicide once every three, four or five years. Uh, And and some of these larger organic farms are figuring out how to not need to plow so often. Um, So both sides are reducing their their weaknesses. And um, I feel like uh, we're going to see some we're seeing some really interesting things happening already. Clearly. There are more than 37 million hectares in agroecology in the tropics alone right now. So, so we're not talking about um, uh, pie in the sky, new experimental practices. We're really talking about large movements that are that have real momentum and trajectory, and that have growth, that have real growth trends. Um, we're just imagining and draw down that we're we're shifting some. We're, we're, we're trying to model what's actually happening, which is that people who, who move from conventional agriculture to conservation ag, many are taking an extra step towards regenerative agriculture. And in our scenarios, we show an increasing level of that happening as we move towards our optimum scenario.
0: Very interesting. Just focusing on the smallholder, I don't know what the figure is, 500, 600 million smallholder farms you talk a little bit about them are they already i mean probably hard to generalize these different parts of the world sub-saharan like africa or asia and so forth any interesting trends there sure
1: well um actually a number of our solutions are uh, are very widely implemented by smallholders already a number of agroforestry solutions for example and we even have one particular solution that just looks at smallholders in fact it just looks at women smallholders um who uh, receive about 7% of the resources that male farmers do in terms of um, uh, government finance or, or training and, and education, that sort of thing. And we modeled that if we were able to bring, that if these women were brought to parity in terms of the resources that they receive with male smallholders, uh, their farm yields would increase, I don't remember, 10 or 20%. Uh, substan- would substantially increase. So we looked at the impact of um, avoided deforestation as a result of that. That is to say, how much forest land would not need to be cut down because these women would be producing that much more. And we found over the over the 20-year period, something like two or three uh, gigatons, uh, two or three billion tons of of uh, emissions could be avoided, of CO2 emissions could be avoided as a result of bringing smallholder women to parity uh, with men in terms of the resources they receive. So that was really very exciting to to have the opportunity to model that and to put that solution forward wherever possible. We certainly are looking for win-win solutions that provide benefits um, uh, to people that provide human rights for human beings above and beyond the carbon alone because if you look at carbon alone you end up um, uh, you can end up with land grabs and you can end up with giant industrial monocultures and a number of socially and environmentally undesirable impacts
0: so what is that point you're getting at there in terms of if you just look at carbon alone
1: well um, we're on the one hand, uh, if we have, if we're taking this opportunity, if civilization is taking this opportunity to transform massive sectors of, of human life, we might as well, if, as long as we're going to the effort, do it in the best way possible that brings as many benefits, co-benefits to as many people and as many environmental co-benefits as possible. Um, that also makes it easier to bring in partners. It makes it easier to finance and and so on. Um, but if you really take a very, very narrow lens and you look only at carbon, let's say in the world of agriculture, then you can end up with um, with uh, vast plantations uh, of monocultures, which are undesirable for ecological reasons. And in many cases, you see lots of people getting displaced, thrown off their land. Uh, in order to make way for these big systems like we see with oil palm in Southeast Asia and so on. Um, so um, Drawdown is looking at solutions that not only have a climate impact, but also have a desirable impact for human beings and the environment in other ways. It just makes sense to try and do that. So we, this was one solution where we were really able to do that, and, and a number of other, other solutions we really look at. What's the impact? What's the benefit for for people and especially for the people who are most impacted by climate change and yet
0: did the least to cause it? Excellent. Okay, so let's talk then uh so let's talk about some of the other solutions that also feature. I'd be interested to get your perspective on tropical staple trees and tree intercropping. Uh you tell me a little bit about those. Great. So tropical
1: staple trees is another solution that isn't really being looked at a whole lot um and yet has quite a lot of potential. The staple crops account for the great majority of the annual crops that are grown. These are the, the protein, the carbohydrates, the fats that we eat every day. So rice and potatoes and soybeans and peanuts and wheat and all these very basic foods that, that humanity consumes and, again, that our livestock consume and so on. Um, uh, in some of my work before Drawdown, I, I looked very, very extensively into this issue to see how are the yields of these of perennial staple crops? And there are perennials, both trees and herbaceous perennials, uh, that produce staple crops. A lot of the attention has been on the perennial versions of grains, perennial rice, perennial wheat, and so on, which are moving along well towards being ready, but really by and large are not yet ready to replace. Uh, Annual grain so drawdown included them as a coming attraction a really important coming attraction but meanwhile there are perennial staple crops that people eat every day like bananas and Avocados and so on there are there are perennial plants trees that produce protein that produce fats that produce carbohydrates Um, and like all trees they have a very powerful carbon sequestration impact uh, drawdown found somewhere around I think maybe four point seven tons per hectare on an average basis that is high very high again four or five times higher than than our annual cropping solutions uh, a big big impact and it's important that in cold climates these perennial staples don't yet yield as well as annuals so without a lot of diet change they, they they're not ready to replace annuals but in the tropics many of them produce as well or better uh, than annual crops for example we have breadfruit which is a magnificent tree for humid tropical areas that makes great big fruits bigger than a grapefruit Um, and they're basically like a potato they're a starchy staple They're they're delicious when prepared in various ways uh, and they have extremely high yields so uh, it's not that we're saying all of the tropics should shift over to growing staples on trees instead of um, instead of uh, annuals. Uh, but it is worth noting that they produce better in the tropics than most of the annuals do there. Uh, highly competitive yields, in many cases superior yields. Um, so can we shift a portion to them? It turns out that the trajectory is that the, these, that, these species are already rapidly expanding. We're already growing more and more perennial staples. Much of that, however, is happening at the expense of deforestation for oil palm, for avocado. There's lots of deforestation for avocado planting right now. So Drawdown's model explicitly says that the they must be planted on um, degraded cropland or degraded grassland, not uh, in recently deforested areas. And It may be that we can't get people to change our diet rapidly enough to really start to base it on these. But the livestock, which eat about a third of annual cropping, uh, of annual cropland, is to grow food for livestock. And pigs, for example, are not really very picky about what they eat. (laughs) and Chickens aren't very picky about what they eat. So if we could at least shift a portion of the diet of those animals... Um, that can make a big difference. So, so Drawdown found, um, uh, we found a really big impact for this solution, which, again, is not really, hasn't been terribly on the radar and, and uh, I think very much very much does belong on the radar.
0: Very interesting. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, I guess, degraded lands or wastelands, um, which aren't a separate uh, solution, clearly. Can you talk a little bit about that? How important is that? I know that others are looking at that at the moment, seems to be an area of growing interest in terms of the potential to work with these landscapes
1: absolutely it's it's and it's precisely because these lands are degraded that they have so much opportunity actually degraded land really means land that has lost its carbon it's lost its organic matter and it's lost its perennial above ground cover um and uh lost its productive capacity as a result so so there's a lot of ways to increase the the to, to put carbon back into degraded land, to rebuild the carbon in the soil, to rebuild a, a healthy ecosystem above ground as well. And we had to struggle is with drawdown. Do we have a solution called restoration of degraded land? Or as it happens, so many of the solutions we look at are used for restoration of degraded land. So what we were able to do is, is place those on degraded land in our map of the world, so to speak, in our agroecological zone uh, model. But also we came up with a specific solution that addresses this, which is the restoration of abandoned farmland. That is a subcategory of degraded land that has not only been beat up, but it's also been, we've stopped farming it completely. We've just left it left it abandoned. And we found somewhere over 400 million hectares of abandoned farmland around the world, which compares again to the 1.5 or 1.6 billion hectares of farmland. So a big chunk of the land that has been farmed by people has been abandoned. And yet we're cutting down forests for new farmland. That's just very bad manners. It's very irresponsible. We need to go back and clean up our mess and bring the land we've already beat up back into production, bring this degraded land back into production. So we looked at restoring that abandoned land and how much, uh, and that is a huge contribution to food production. That's a big part of why we were able to feed the world in 2050 is we brought so much of that land, not all of it. Some of it is really wrecked forever or, or uneconomically, uh, you know, um, recoverable, but we, we brought a bunch of that land back with that solution and that definitely helped with, um with our achieving our goals it's really just uh, it's just not what you teach your children to do right to make a mess and then leave it and go on somewhere else and make another mess you take good care of things you'd be responsible you clean up your mess so that's that's kind of our our approach there but but a number of our solutions take place on degraded cropland and degraded forest land and degraded all of our degraded forest land we put back into forest Our degraded uh, cropland, we put back into some better form of cropping, whether it was regenerative agriculture or agroforestry, and some degraded grassland went back into silvopasture, Uh, but mostly our degraded grassland was put
0: into uh, afforestation, to tropical tree staples, and so on. Great, great. And just before moving on, Eric, is there any other solution you'd like to discuss?
1: Sure, I I could give a a quick talk about tree intercropping, which is a a suite of agroforestry systems that combine trees with annual crops. Um, It's much more widespread than most uh, people had thought. We have figures that show that about um, 43% of cropland has at least 10% tree cover globally, and that that rate is growing. Um, Sequestration rates are... are, um, sort of low to medium, um, and, uh, often people think that those trees, just as they think for silvopasture, in many cases, people think that adding trees to cropland is going to reduce the yields of the annual crops because of shade. And if you do it badly, it does. Um. But when you get the spacing right and the right kinds of trees, you actually can increase the yield of annual crops. And in in much of Africa, for example, we see uh, there's a system spreading called farmer-managed natural regeneration, which is greatly increasing yields. Um, Evergreen agriculture is another where there's a, in the Sahel where you have a dry season and a rainy season, um, there's a particular tree, the the, um, apple ring acacia, that leafs out in the dry season but drops its leaves in the rainy season so it doesn't shade the crops beneath it at all it fixes nitrogen so it's making lots of fertilizer for the crops underneath uh, and it's not shading them out in the least and we're seeing really impressive increases in the yield with that kind of system so um, people also think you can't mechanize this because the trees will be in the way but if you have rows of trees spaced properly to allow the machinery come through, there's really no uh, no impact on um, on the the ability to mechanize to, to operate a mechanized farm. So um, I see quite a great future for agroforestry both at the smallholder scale and at the at
0: the mechanized scale as well. Very interesting. Now you haven't mentioned here, and I'm just wondering um, the potential in terms of increasing yields through scientific methods like, controversial or not, like GM crops, other kinds of science-driven uh, improvements in yields, uh, you know, uh, related to advances in molecular biology and indeed using that kind of insight to Im- improve yields. Was that something that you expected at the beginning to include or not? Or how does it filter into the different uh, solutions? Sure. I mean, I think that's part of what's behind conservation agriculture.
1: And that's very much, I think, what's behind that in terms of the those are they're using GMO crops there often um, and so on. Um, I think there is a sense of drawdown that that is not uh, socially and ecologically as desirable as some of these other approaches. And certainly there's plant breeding behind all these practices um, they're all science-driven. They're just not driven by that particular science. Um, there's sort of a contrasting. There's there's one of the big versions of uh, of agricultural supply uh, uh, approaches to 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 climate. Uh, one approaches is, in, is intensification. What they call sustainable intensification, which says we need to just use lots more fertilizer and lots of GMO crops to maximize production on land so that we can avoid deforestation, avoid emissions from deforestation. And even though there are emissions from our agriculture because we're using chemical fertilizer and so on, those are dwarfed by the uh, power of um, avoided deforestation. Which is true, that avoided deforestation is really critical, but I, I think it is inaccurate to say that that is the only way to increase yields. Lots of lots of approaches increase yields, including many very ecologically friendly practices like silvopasture, like managed grazing, like regenerative agriculture, like
0: tree intercropping, like system of rice intensification. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. And that's, I just wanted to understand whether or not these other methods were taken into account, were they excluded because of their non-ecological basis or did they just not make the ranks? Because um, I, I, I just m- minded by the degree to which these methodologies are, s- seem so natural and seem so uh, you know, <laughs> ecological.
1: Right. Well, we, we certainly debated that and it, it didn't make it in at this time uh, as a solution on its own, mostly because of we, we are, in fact, addressing intensification again, kind of like this restoring degraded land. We're doing it across the board. And I'll say that people absolute that a practice like tree intercropping is absolutely compatible with that kind of annual cropping. Lots of people use chemical fertilizer in tree intercropping systems. You can use GMO crops in uh, tree intercropping systems and so on. It's not as though they're uh, incompatible. It's not my personal preference for how things are done, but it's not like it isn't done that way in places. Um, but I think we we sort of came down on the side of agroecological intensification rather than... Um, Uh, just doubling down on the sort of uh, uh, emissions-heavy chemical fertilizer version of what that looks like.
0: Well, absolutely. I know there are people who talk about a a, a biological wall and a limit to yields in that respect. But I'm just wondering, in terms of trends in industrialization or technologification of agriculture worldwide – and ideas of efficiency and ideas of short term returns. People are drawn towards simple solutions often. You know, particular fertilizers, high intensity fertilizers or how do these methods uh stack up in that sense? Because there does seem to be often a trade-off between ideas, solutions that are, are good, that are uh ecological that, that we would we would choose, but people at the margin don't because these other solutions are somehow more cost effective. They can buy something, put it on and get something out. And it's all a uh, much faster time cycle and, and much more short termism.
1: Yes. Well, um, well, uh, I've having farmed myself, I very much understand the pressures on farmers, the incredible economic pressures on farmers, and they do have to compete in this economy and in this environment. Um, so, uh, it's very understandable when some things are basically subsidized again in visible and invisible ways. Um, it's very hard for people to implement a lot of these solutions that may involve them having reduced income for a period of time until they ultimately show higher productivity. Even just converting to uh, conservation agriculture, for example, from conventional takes. Really several years until the farm comes back to um, the level of profit it was at before transition after that it typically increases in profitability some so that's why we, there is this need for a robust system of of um, of finance and other incentives to assist farmers to make these uh, to make these changes um, but I will say again that I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's the case that intensification with fertilizers, the only kind of intensification I that's clearly not true and it's not the most desirable in terms of its co benefits and so on. But I also, we, we really took that into account. For example, when you look at organic agriculture studies more or less show that in the tropics, it increases yields, but in colder climates, organic has lower yields than conventional, uh, lower yields than business as usual. So um, that was one reason we didn't use organic as a solution. We didn't use organic alone as a solution because um, uh, increasing yields is really important. So we incorporated organic as one part of our regenerative agriculture solution. And when you do add some of these other components to it, it can increase the yields of, uh, of organic systems. Um, it's, I think it's important on the organic side on that, let's say, that, that end of the conversation to respect and understand that intensification is an environmental argument, uh, that increasing yields is important, but also reducing waste and, uh, not trying to run the world on biofuel and changing diet, uh, can really make these agroecological systems work. Um, that there's, there's no way to feed the world without, there's only you you just can't do it. You can't feed the whole world with increasing biofuel, with increasing uh, meat consumption, um, without deforestation. No matter how much fertilizer and GM crops you use, it just can't. It can't be done. That's not the. That's not the way to go, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Sorry. Right, uh, I'm, I'm. I'm just there now, Eric. Thank you. I'm going to ask you about looking forward and what's next. I'm just wondering: is there a, a multilateral uh, organization like the World Bank or something like that? Are there a UN organization or the World Health Organization that looks after farming? Sure. Oh, we
1: have the the Food and Ag organization of the, of the, uh, which are UN affiliated. And then we have a number of research entities. Like there's a world agroforestry center, for example, and there's a tropical agriculture Institute and there's an Institute for potatoes and, and so on. So there is, there's absolutely a, a whole set of international bodies that, um, that look at agriculture and food production and, and land use. And, and they're all very much paying attention to climate change. It's a top item for all of them they have a lot of different ideas about what should be done including within the same agencies there's a lot of different ideas
0: but it's a very 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 big uh, conversation right. What's next now for uh, drawdown on the farming supply side of things?
1: well in the in the very um, in the in the short to midterm we're just uh, we're updating numbers we're upgrading our models we're we're adding new and recent data and um, we're hoping to add more regional detail so we can say more about particular regions like sub-saharan Africa or um, or uh, like Latin America and so on um, and um, we're also starting to think about what we're, what's the next set of solutions and coming attractions that we want to
0: look at. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time and talking through the the great work that you've done, the research. Uh, it's very promising, very exciting. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing research.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.